Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm John Prado, The Economist's U.S. editor, and this week we're asking, after the decision to withdraw troops from northern Syria, who can trust Donald Trump's America? The Kurds, America's allies and heroes in the fight against ISIS, have turned to Syria's dictator Bashar al-Assad for help. The Syrian regime has regained more ground in the northeast of the country in the last few days than it previously had in a few years. Perhaps more worryingly, thousands of ISIS prisoners guarded by Kurdish fighters look set to be released, allowing a beaten adversary to regroup. President Donald Trump summed up his foreign policy, as ever, in a tweet saying of his country's former allies, I hope they all do great. We're 7,000 miles away. But can America abandon its allies without weakening itself? Is this what America First looks like in practice? My guest today is deeply familiar with the delicate act of balancing national security, the national interest, and foreign relations. Ash Carter served as Secretary of Defense under Barack Obama from 2015 to 2017. This was the culmination of 37 years at the Pentagon. He's now a professor of technology and global affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School and the author of the recently published book Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership at the Pentagon. Ash Carter, welcome to The Economist Asks. Good to be here. Let's begin with the news. You know northern Syria pretty well. You've spent time building the military alliance between the US and the Kurds to try and fight off ISIS. And actually, that was an extraordinarily successful military alliance that got the job done in fairly short order. Given that, how do you view what's happened with the Turkish incursion into northern Syria over the past week or so and the abandonment by the US of the Kurds? Well, I'm concerned about it because in the first instance, ISIS is going to bounce back. You got to cast your mind back, as you were saying, to 2015. And remember that ISIS and, and especially plotters in the city of Raqqa in northeastern Syria were planning, directing, and inspiring attacks on our people, that is, UK citizens and those of the Western world. And then the question becomes a managerial one for, for me. Uh, what is the right structure for a campaign to destroy ISIS in Syria, given that it needs to be destroyed. We could have done it ourselves, but that would have put our troops as infantry fighting through territory not familiar uh, to them. And that is not our comparative military advantage. And you reap the resentment of the lo local population. In fact, they might even have fought against us rather than with us had we taken that approach. Therefore, our strategic pro approach was different, to try to find a partner who could be the infantry to the great war machine of the Western coalition. So ISIS was uh, certainly greatly suppressed 
and the victory was territorially complete, but they still have the potential to snap back. And my concern is that for now, which will be the third time, we will allow victory to dissolve into a new challenge from the same old people, Sunni extremists. And in a year, two years, ISIS will be capable once again of plotting against our people and we're going to have to protect ourselves, which means we're going to have to do it all over again. But this time, will be alone. So there's a specific strategic concern there. Is there something broader here as well that America's sort of reputation in the world is damaged when it abandons allies in the way it has abandoned the Kurds? Or is it the case that you know, the application of military force is a hard-headed business? You know, these alliances are sort of temporary and shifting and you have to be prepared to abandon allies sort of as needs be. Well, all of these relationships are ones of mutual benefit and transactional, and ours was highly transactional with the Syrian Kurds. We were willing to help them take the territory they wanted. In the process, they would defeat an enemy of ours. These things do have reputational repercussions. If you go back in history and you think about the withdrawal from Vietnam, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 the so-called red line in Syria over chemical weapons. These may look like a individual and local instance, but they're remembered. And so my concern for my own country and its own reputation uh, is that this will be remembered as an example of a case where the United States abandoned a partner before for the job was done. That's going to be bad for us, as I said, in the near term. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid, as you say, uh, it will be redound to our reputation uh, in the long run in an unfortunate way. It's interesting that you mentioned Vietnam because I suppose the counterargument to your view would be that, well, America has to get out of some of these wars at some point. Whenever you leave, see Vietnam, you betray allies. But the alternative to that is a sort of centuries-long military presence. What, what would you say to that objection? Well, first of all, I wasn't trying to draw a parallel between Vietnam and, its, and, and this particular instance, except insofar as it is a memorable event in military uh, history. I think they, they're very different. But the war was over and won. That doesn't mean that uh, the American military role or the American uh, role in general is over. I always said when I was Secretary of Defense that my principal concern was for the aftermath. There's a difference between an endless war and a war that is won followed by a sustained American military presence that keeps the peace. After the Korean War uh, and the armistice, we didn't leave South Korea and we've had troops there for 70 years. I've been there countless times in Europe during the Cold War. Uh, to counter the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, we maintained large troop numbers in Europe, even though World War II was over, um, and we were not in a state of war with the Soviet Union. That was a good investment, and I'm concerned now that we are failing to sustain our victory over ISIS, and we'll be back to where we were 
when it all started in 2015, which to me as Secretary of Defense of the United States and as a as an ally of my friends in in Europe talking to the ministers of defense of all the countries there, completely unacceptable. You can't have these barbarians uh, running around enslaving people, killing people, crucifying people there. And very importantly, attacking our own people. I'm the Secretary of Defense of the United States. My first job is to protect my people, and I'm going to do it. And that's what the war against ISIS was about. And as I say, I don't want to have to do it all over again, but we might have to now if we abandon the peace we have won. You've made it clear in the book that you wouldn't have served as Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump had he asked you. But imagine you were... Secretary of Defense when a decision like this were taken, would you resign or would you try and use your influence from within the system to make the outcome, you know, the least bad outcome possible given the political direction from the top? And, and how would you weigh those considerations? Well, first of all, when you, you weigh a decision to take a big job, like the job of Secretary of Defense, and I even weighed it within the case of President Obama, and I'd worked for him before, you have to ask yourself, my first duty is to help the president be successful. Is it likely that I'm going to be able to help the president? I do not believe I could help President Trump because I don't know him very well. Uh, I believe that we would immediately find our views discrepant in many areas. For example, the value we attach to allies. And moreover, I observe that he doesn't take the advice of secretaries of defense. And so it's not helping him if you take the job knowing that every day you're going to be giving him advice that is contrary to his own beliefs. We're all going to have instances when the president doesn't take our advice. And provided they're not too frequent or too large, you do your job and recognize that you are not the president of the United States. And when he makes a decision, you have a duty to try to implement it with excellence. Um, but if those differences get too large or too frequent, um, it's not worth it. It's not good for him because he's not getting any help. And it's not good for you because you're wasting your time and, and effort Let's move on to U.S.-China relations, which I think is one area where you might have a bit more sympathy with the approach uh, President Donald Trump has taken so far. You've been quite critical of you know, free traders who've said that the you know, most important thing is to keep trade flowing with China. You've said some things about the wisdom of educating you know, Chinese students in the U.S. and so forth. What do you think the relationship between the U.S. and China, given the current complexion of the Chinese government ought to be like? The broad arc of my strategic judgments about China go back 30 years because I've been dealing with the Chinese and the PLA for 30 years. It was still possible to John to hope in the 1990s that China would turn out the way people hoped it would. Uh, it hasn't. It's turned out the way it wants to be. The Chinese are able to bring to bear upon a country, let's say a trading partner of ours, or a company, maybe an American company, a combination of military, economic, and political power uh, marshaled together that a dictatorship can bring. And that's not the way our countries work. 
So we can't match that. That's an inherently uneven playing field. So free trade doesn't describe what China does. So that's not the right model. And Cold War isolation might have been appropriate for the Soviet Union during the Cold War. It's not appropriate for a country with which you trade. So we need a third playbook, which is neither of those. And I think President Trump's trade and tariff policies are a reflection of that fact. They didn't cause it. I do believe that we have to push back where the playing field is uneven. Uh, we can't be naive. We have to protect ourselves economically. It sounds like that is broadly supportive of President Trump's position. You, you don't want this to lead to a trade war, but you don't favor kind of total isolation in the way that the US... Well, I suppose there was a, there was a certain amount of trade, wasn't there, in commodities, I think, between the Soviet Union and the US. But there wasn't, as you say, there wasn't much trade. Um, oh, so you it don't was favor a total tiny... Isolation. Tiny, tiny amount. It was a big deal when Richard Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev, I guess, uh, allowed Pepsi-Cola to be bottled in the Soviet Union. Pepsi-Cola was a notable export uh, in those days. So there wasn't much trade at all. And we in the Defense Department, and I way back when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense in the early 1990s, ran, among other responsibilities, having to do with Russia, our export control system. And you couldn't export anything that was came anywhere close to high tech uh, because our job was to make their economic flaws of communism uh, ultimately revealed, uh, which is what happened, uh, and also to make sure in the meantime they didn't gain any military advantage it was a near total isolation. But that was then and now is now. And you're not going to do that with China and no other country would want to do it with us because they want to trade with China as well. We are pushing back on China. And, and I think that that's good. I, I, I'd like to see it a more subtle playbook than just tariffs. But we await that playbook from the economists. Uh, what we have to do is do it with our other partners. And we are better as a family of nations making this new playbook with China than we are one by one, which is one reason why I was a strong backer of the TPP, the trade deal that was multilateral and principles-based rather than bilateral and coercion-based, which is the favored Chinese economic form of relationship in the current moment. I think that's a way in which our policy could be improved. Do you think American companies are too quick to abandon American values on things like free speech when they see the size of the potential opportunity in Chinese markets? I mean, a couple of days ago, we had the NBA embarrassing itself by you know, apologizing for the Houston Rockets general manager, criticizing the Chinese government in, for what's happening in Hong Kong and, and um, you know, really bending over backwards to avoid offending China in, in any way and before changing tack a bit. I mean, do you think that there has to be a kind of broader reckoning in American society about the trade-off here between growing markets for businesses and values? Yes, you can't isolate values from trade um, in the tech area, uh, you can't separate tech from culture because tech is the principal way that culture is shared. And you see China already walling itself off technologically 
and culturally. That's what they're doing. Um, we have been much slower to take those kind of actions ourselves, but I think we need to be realistic that there are going to be two systems of values here. Western ideology at its best is about mankind in general and about dignity and rights. And I believe in those values. Chinese political philosophy is about, first of all, about being Chinese. And that's fine if you're Chinese, but if you're not Chinese, you're on the outs in its political philosophy. Uh, we shouldn't allow our companies to participate in, in using tech to create repression in Xinjiang or Hong Kong. And there are going to be moments at which American companies are going to have to stand up and say, what values do they wish to represent? And that's going to mean that in some markets, in some areas, there is going to be de facto segregation between the China and the United States. How does an America first foreign policy in which there's much less weight placed on alliances affect America's preparedness and ability to adapt to face threats that were hard to anticipate. There's this idea that somehow alliances are gifts we give to foreigners. That's not true. Uh, an alliance is a, a force multiplier for us. Uh, it gives us additional forces. And yes, we always want our allies to have larger militaries. And that's been a long-standing bone of contention between us and our allies. But they do have capable militaries. For example, the UK does. And they use it with us. And that's helpful. Uh, in some cases, uh, they provide territory that is very useful as well. It's convenient for us to be in Japan and in South Korea, given our concerns about China. And so that's a way that they force multiply us. And if they share our values, um, they're a way of multiplying and reinforcing what we believe as Americans is the right way to treat people and the right life. They're instrumentally helpful to me as Secretary of Defense. Now, I can go it alone if I have to, but I'm a lot better off not going it alone. And the other thing I think that has to be said about alliances, they're like families. Uh, you know, you disagree on a day-to-day -day basis. You have arguments and so forth. But you know that your destinies are entwined and that you're better together than you are apart. You don't let it cloud the fact. It is in your best interest to stick with this sometimes troublesome uh, alliance. So I, I dealt with them over many years. I had my share of set twos with my partners, even my British partners and I have, have had arguments from time to time. Uh, but we picked ourselves up and went on afterwards because we know that that's necessary to protect our people. So to, to me, it is putting America first to have allies because that's one of the ways that I empower my department, the Defense Department, to protect America. That's my job. That's my very first job. Let's talk about your time running the Pentagon, which takes up a good portion of your book. It's an organization that you clearly have great affection for, you know, sort of almost love, I I'd say. It's also an organization of mind-boggling complexity. Um, you write in the book that the DOD employs more men and women than Amazon, McDonald's, FedEx, Target, and General Electric combined and conducts more research and development than Apple, Google, 
and Microsoft, again combined. It manages half the US federal budget, excluding entitlements and interest on the national debt. A burden of more than $700 billion, which is larger than the GDP of Sweden. You also mentioned that there are 10,000 acquisition officers at the Pentagon charged with buying anything from the sort of beef that the soldiers eat to the flight suits worn by pilots. How would you sort of sleep at night comfortable that you knew enough about what was going on in this vast, vast complex organization? I was fortunate because I'd been in and out of the department since 1981. So... Remember, I had been the COO, so the person down in the engine room running the place as the secretary does the secretary's job. And before that, I had been the undersecretary, the so-called weapons czar, who spends all the money, does all the R&D, buys all the planes, ships, tanks, and satellites. Uh, so I had seen every corner of the place, and in that sense... I was as well or better prepared than any of my predecessors to manage the place. We've been talking about the policymaking role of the Secretary of Defense, and that's an important one, but it's only one of what I saw as three jobs. When I walked out of the Situation Room with the President's decision, for me, work was just beginning because I had to carry out that decision. If we're going to war, if we're doing a night raid, if we're doing a hostage rescue, I need to make sure that that is implemented with excellence. So my second job is to implement policy. And the third is simply to run what is half of the federal government. He's got a whole cabinet full of people, but one of them is running half the show. So I had those three jobs. And moreover, the Pentagon is not like a business because it, it, in one way, which is it's not only 240 years old, uh, which no other business is, uh, but it'll be here no matter what. There's no going out of business. There's no IPO. There's no exit. We, the Department of Defense, are going to be part of our country for a long time. And therefore, I always looked at my job as being the Secretary of Defense of today but also the Secretary of Defense of tomorrow. So I was always managing both the present and the future. It seems to me there are a handful of things that American foreign policy worries about most of all, which might be North Korea, Iran, ISIS, and perhaps the South China Sea. Are we worrying about the right things? And how do you prepare for threats that you haven't yet identified? I think it's pretty obvious, and I would tell everybody, let's not make an over-mysterious strategy. Uh, we've got China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. They're right there in front of our face. We have to be on top of those. Now, at the same time, I said we have to ask ourselves the question that you're asking, John, and rightly so, which is what is down the road that we haven't foreseen? And the way you deal with the uncertainty of the future is by making sure that when it comes, whatever it is, you're as good at your job as you possibly can be. And that's why having good people, having good technology, having good institutional culture, good discipline, and handing that on to my successors. Remember, you're, you're, you're telling millions of people what to do every day. You need clarity and consistency. That's critical in the performance of any organization, particularly a military organization. So when I would have gone and give troop talks to in the Asia Pacific, for example, you have a whole bunch of sailors or Marines or soldiers, I, I'd tell them why they're there. What's the larger meaning of it? What's the strategic game? 
And that was the same thing, speech after speech. Why are you here? What's the point? Because you're getting up every morning and being part of something bigger than yourself. And I had the privilege for, you know, 37 years of being associated with something much larger than myself, namely the U.S. Department of Defense. And, you know, it's not perfect and it didn't always behave perfectly, but overall, it's a wonderful institution and does a lot of good. And I, uh, it was a privilege for me to be part of it. Secretary Carter, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Good to be with you, John. And we want to know what you think. Have America's actions in Syria damaged its ability to deal with future threats? Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you'd like to follow our ongoing analysis of the situation in Syria, what it means for America and the world, podcast listeners can get their first 12 issues of The Economist for just $12 or £12 by going to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm John Priddo, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.